Tell you a truth with my guys. Look at Nate. Hey, Nate. Oh, always good to see you there. Got you there. There's Chad. Chad's looking. Uh, uh, how's how's uh, Arizona? It was negative eight uh, around here or worse in the Denver area. They've canceled schools around here, Chad, because we don't want little kidsicles out there for those that do have bus driver service for schools, which is fewer and fewer schools. How exactly is Arizona, Chad? It is beautiful. Unfortunately, um, they canceled my flight. I was supposed to go back to Colorado last night, so I'll be going back mm. to Colorado today. Uh-huh. Um, but it's yeah, it's a balmy 68, 69 degrees. I think tomorrow's going to be uh, mid-70s. Wow. So, yeah, that's what's happening in the lovely land of the desert here in Arizona. Yeah, you know why they canceled your flight? Because it sucked here. Did you- <laughs> All right, I gotta. this is off football just for a second. The Nuggets, team plane. Sat on the tarmac at Signature for five and a half hours yesterday before flying out to Philadelphia. What is the long? Would that freak you out if you were just sitting on a plane for five and a half hours before it even took off? I've done that before. I've had delays due to weather or ice or whatever the case may be on team flights. It just sucks. You're just forced to sit there. Um, and you still got to do the rest of your travel that day. You know, not like they're going to kick the can down the road on the game. The game still has to happen. So it's part of the professional athlete experience. And, uh, yeah, I've had some quite uh, quite the harrowing experiences on oh. team travel. Um, and weather travel is certainly one of those uh, experiences that are no fun. No fun, man. No fun. Haven't had any, any anything like that. No five and a half hours on the tarmac. To my recollection, when I played for the Broncos, we didn't really have too many hiccups or any sort of travel snafus. Now, when I played uh, for Menlo College, D3 football, we had quite a few there because we didn't have the budget. Uh, a lot of times we didn't even fly. We rode, rode a bus. And uh, one time that bus got lost and we showed up 30 minutes before the game started. Come on. And we pulled up to the field and the other team was already out there warming up on the field in their uniform. Like the game was about to start. We were getting taped on the bus. Um, and then we, uh, we ended up coming out pretty slow in that game. As you can might imagine, we went down 21 zero, um, but, but we came back and we had a final drive to win it. And we came up short on the five yard oh. line and lost the game. But our quarterback broke the all division NCAA record for most passing yards in a game, that game with 731 yards. That has since been broken. It's like 738 now or something. But uh, we lost the game, 731 yards. I had like 250. Wow. um, We had four receivers. I think five guys over 100 yards receiving in that game. And you guys lost? And we lost. What was the score of the game? That is. It was like 38 35 or something like that. Wow. Lonely running back. All right. uh, Let's talk about yesterday. Big takeaways. Let's start with the Bills game. All right, Chad, what did we learn about the Buffalo Bills uh, over your Steelers? Uh, as we predicted yesterday, the, the Bills were the better team. Uh, the Steeler offense was certainly lacking. But it, it, the Steeler comeback or attempted comeback in the game just goes to show in the NFL, the line's not that different between a team like Buffalo, which we expect to win, and the, the Steelers, who struggled all year to score points but can still ramp it up when it's important to them. Uh, I think it speaks well to the coaching job that Mike Tomlin has done. It also speaks to the unevenness that we've seen from the Bills, which has pretty much disappeared the last four or five weeks, but that's still who they are. Um, so it's hard to change your DNA as a football team just because the playoffs are here. and You think you can just go up to the wall and flip a switch and suddenly be that team. Even if you can have a little bit of a streak going, 
it's hard to do that. The NFL is just so difficult to, it's like a big giant cruise ship or a big giant oil taker. It just takes so long mm. to change direction when you've already established that direction all season long. So, uh, you know, tip of the cap to the Steelers to be in the playoffs anyway and to make a showing of it. It could have been one of those, another one of those blow out, blow out playoff games, but the Steelers, you know, played above what we expected them to play. The Bills still got the win. Nate? Yeah, Steelers made it a game there. Had those two two, two first half turnovers that kind of screwed them, but they were in it, and, and you know they pulled within. Oh, was it seven there in the fourth quarter or whatever it was? And uh, got down to one score. Yep, yep, yeah. yep, yep. Yeah, the thought that you know with a the stop they could have been in it. Mason Rudolph didn't look as bad as you know we might have thought he would be. Uh, I think they still need to figure out who their quarterback is. Maybe it's Russell. Maybe it's Russell Wilson. Uh, I think he would work in that off in that offense pretty well. Um, but, um, yeah, not the most exciting g- game at the same time. Like those games yesterday were, you know, both of them kind of, eh. um, one really good game out of six and, and the wild card weekend is supposed to be the best weekend of the year in the NFL. Right. And, right. and maybe the weather had a lot to do with that. Um, but, um, you know, a little underwhelming. Yeah, I think, I think the weather had a lot to do with it in a couple of different games. And as hardy as all those people are from North Tonawanda, Lackawanna, and Cheektowaga that filled the stands, you know, it just it just impacted the the game. Now, that being said, I will say watching a great quarterback like Josh Allen is throw to talented tight ends is mm. a thing of beauty. Like, Nate, yeah. there's just nothing like um, a tight end over a linebacker it is got to be and chad I, I feel sympathetic towards you and your crew for having to defend it but it's it, it's so much different than it used to be chad but i'll start with you here nate w- when you see that do you get a little envy for the broncos like look at this play like we don't have and haven't used in our back pocket it's the worst mismatch on the field that josh allen exploited over and over again yeah and that uh, that touchdown there to i think it was dalton kincaid that seam route Chad's talked about this a lot, how hard it is to cover that. And I have talked a lot about how great it is of a route to run as a yeah. tight end or or even as a receiver, but especially as a tight end because you do get those mismatches and you're always open. I mean, it doesn't matter what the coverage is. You have an open area. If it's a, if it's a too deep safety look, then you take the middle of the field, you bend it into the middle. And mm-hmm. if it's a single safety, you just stay up that seam and you're open there as well. And you see the ball and the defender doesn't. And these guys run you know, behind and he's trying to look back and he can't he's all out of whack and you know one little slight move inside or outside and you you lose him and you could track that ball he can't and it really does take an accuracy from your quarterback though and an ability to put that ball on you um i've told this story before and i'll tell it again i had a workout with the new orleans saints in 2009 after i got cut by the broncos this was at the end of training camp right before the season started they had an injury to a their number two tight end so they needed a guy it was four of us that got flown in for the workout drew Brees threw to us Sean Payton was out there telling us what to do. <clears throat> and um, we ran like four different seam routes. Like the, we said, ran the same route like four different times, four different ways. And then on the, on the last one, it was a back shoulder seam mm. that, he, that Drew Brees was going to place in a certain spot. We were going to run it the same way as we just did, but now he's going to place it in a different spot. So th- it's clearly important to Sean Payton, important to these yeah. offensive-minded coaches to work the middle of the field with those guys. Um, we weren't able to do that this year as for the Broncos, but you see that with Josh Allen and Dalton Kincaid. It's really hard to cover. What, what, wait, hold on. Before I get 
What happened to the tryout there, Nate? Uh, who got the I had job? A good, I had a good workout. You know, it was funny. Jeb Putzier was there as well. He oh, had a good, okay. pretty good workout. There was a bunch of guys just at the end of their career. None of us got signed. They ended up signing some other kid, uh, a younger guy. Um, but um, but it, it was indicative of the, the attention to detail that Sean Payton shows because I had one in Philly a couple weeks before that. Um, and then I ended up having one in Cleveland and, and the head coaches weren't, you know, watching you do that. They weren't telling you what to do and what routes to run. It was an offensive. It was your position coach and like some staffers out there, you know, right. but this was Drew Brees and Sean Payton. Wow. And so, um, yeah, it was, it was, um, I don't know. It's, it's no surprise that he's so sort of detail oriented when it comes to what he does. Chad, it's got to be impossible to cover. I don't know what you do as a linebacker. I mean, I, I think you just do your Bobby Boucher and try the hardest as you can. But it's such a ridiculous mismatch, right? It is. And so your job as a linebacker is not necessarily to break up that pass, is to run close enough to the tight end that the quarterback is forced to elevate the throw high enough to now we can buy time for our safeties to be able to make the play. We yeah. saw what happened to uh, Higby from the Lions. Safety came down, made the play, blew his ACL out. I mean, that, that was right. ugly. It's, it's unfortunate. So that's the kind of thing that safeties try to do to those bigger tight ends down the middle of the field. Now, same thing with uh, what uh, TJ Ward and Gronk, uh, what, 10 flashback 10 years ago. So that's the defensive plan there. But when you are in cover two as a defense, the middle of the field is open. So for a play caller like Sean Payton to have that weapon as his disposal, now we can start to dictate to the defense what coverages they can run. Okay, you want to go cover two? We're going to gash you down the middle of the field, and then we'll get you out of that. And so the Broncos and Sean Payton never had that ability last year to force defenses into that and, and, and be able to affect the defensive play calling with that constant threat of the tight end down the middle of the field. So now you're, you're starting to take away weapons because Russell Wilson didn't like to throw in the middle of the field. Right, right. And so that's one of those limitations for Russell Wilson that may not have been talked about all season long. And part of that was due to the lack of talent and availability in the tight end room. But Russell Wilson has shown over his entire career. That's not a route that he's very comfortable with. So, again, the, the reasons for this Russell Wilson, Sean Payton breakup are many fold. And I think that's a major one because as a play caller, you've taken away literally this amazing weapon that I have where I can force that guy on the other sideline who's calling plays to the other team. I can take away something from him. And that gives me the advantage. Russell Wilson, because his discomfort in that took that opportunity away from Sean Payton. You know, hey, Chad's point real quick about that. You know, uh, the safety. He's he, um, Chad's trying to be tight enough in coverage to make the ball have to go over the top and let the safety get over. That's why the eyes of the quarterback are very important to hold the safety on the other side, right? Mm -hmm. And so I'm I'm dropping back and I'm looking over here and the safety thinks I'm going over there and then boom, I go like that and uh, and it's and it's and it's a touchdown. Well, I was just going to get there. Like Chad, you're almost six three, six two and change, something like that, right? Yep. And Nate, you're are you six? Four? Are you... I'm like between six three and six four. Right, Josh yeah. Allen is six five and change. Like as big as you guys are, and you're two for me big guys. Josh Allen is bigger than both of y'all, and that's where he's throwing the football from. Now let's yeah. talk about mm. weepy little Russell Wilson, and mm. like uh, where where you guys just tower over Russell Wilson. Never mind Mike McGlinchey or Garrett Bowles or. You know, those guys that he's got to throw over. And I, I guess I, I have a little sympathy for Russ on that. I mean, what exactly is he supposed to do? But but then again, what were we thinking about in the first place? Let me go back to this then. How is Drew Brees able to make that happen? Okay. 
because he is a little taller than Russell, but just a little taller and not nearly as big as um, Josh Allen. So, so Chad, how how was Drew Brees able to make those passes that Russ just can't? Drew Brees had a much better command of life within the pocket and ability to step up. Now, of course, Sean Payton and Mickey Loomis, the GM for the Saints, they understood that Drew Brees was a shorter quarterback, and they drafted centers and guards oh, who were okay. great at pass protection, guys who did not get knocked back. But at the same time, we've seen Russell Wilson abandon the pocket so many times when the pass rush is not affecting Russell Wilson. And he his footwork gets off, whereas Drew Brees, I think, had really great pocket discipline. He had trust in those guys up front. And so his ability to throw out of the well as a shorter quarterback, literally throw out of the well and kind of get the correct loft on a football um, from a shorter platform as a shorter quarterback uh, may be the best in NFL history from a short guy perspective. Um, you know, I played with Doug Flutie in, in New England. I played against Doug Flutie when he was a San Diego Charger. Uh, Doug Flutie was uncomfortable within the pocket. He wanted to roll out. He wanted to do boots. He wanted to do all those kind of things so he could see down the field. So if you were going to get Doug Flutie, that's the kind of offense you had to run versus Drew Brees, who was not nearly as short as Doug Flutie, but certainly operated so well within the pocket. Russell Wilson, not that same level of comfort, not that same level of ability. And again, another thing where Sean Payton is coming from this Drew Brees experience hoping to replicate that with Russell Wilson. And Russell Wilson just doesn't have and possess the same skill set and can't do it the same way that Drew Brees did. Yeah, uh, that first year they were together, 2006, Drew Brees was an MVP uh, candidate and Sean Payton won Coach of the Year. But um, Drew Brees Drew Brees plays different than, than, than Russell, like Chad was alluding to. Like Russell is in that fighting stance. He's an athletic stance. He wants to get out. That lowers your body a little bit, right? Mm -hmm. He's always kind of in the squat, ready to do this stuff. He's like in a boxing stance. Whereas Drew Brees really stood up on his toes and really like maximized his 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 lack of height by mm -hmm. like looking as high as he can and standing as tall as he could. That's how he would throw the ball. And so they their their technique was very very different inside in, inside of the pocket. Even when Russell stays in the pocket, he's more down like this. Drew Brees was standing tall. Also, from a receiver's point of view, this is actually interesting. So a receiver is always adjusting to the ball, no matter what. There's no such thing as a perfect pass. I say this all the time because the receiver is always making an adjustment. Even if you don't have to break your stride, you're still adjusting to that fact because it is a perfect ball or whatever. So you're always looking back trying to get as much information as you can about the trajectory from the quarterback, right? So the better you know the quarterback and the better you can see the quarterback, the, the quicker you can adjust to the ball as it releases from his hand or his body language, his trajectory, his angle will tell you if it's coming up or coming down. If you can't see Russell, you don't know that little information that's going to help you adjust ever so much more quicker. <laughs> to the ball so so there's little stuff that you don't really think about that affects it uh, for, so a guy like josh allen who's six five in the pocket i'm seeing him deliver that ball every time and so i know exactly how it's coming off his hand and where it's coming down all right great stuff uh, you know it begs a, a bigger question too when it comes to the broncos and that's just about josh allen period where do you guys <laughs> think oh, i'm being serious here yeah, i don't want to see him naked i'm not gonna lie yeah, well, you know, where do you think the Broncos would be had they drafted Josh Allen, Nate? 
So this is um, I'm going to harken back to to one of your arguments against me last week, talking about the pitch count and how the situation would change and how things wouldn't always be the same. You can't look at a player and be like he would have had the same career here, and it, and for whatever reason, guys, the Broncos' offense has been doomed since Peyton Manning left the building. You tell me why. I don't know why, but doesn't matter the coach, doesn't matter the quarterback, doesn't matter the owner. The offense sucks. Why is it? So I have to apply that logic a little bit to Josh Allen coming here and thinking that he probably wouldn't have quite as smooth of a path as he has with the, with the Bills. That said, you, there would be no question as to who your guy was, okay? And you'd be able to build around him every year. And, um, you know, assuming he was available and didn't get injured, then you would be able to build around your quarterback in a way that the Broncos have not been able to build around. And you cannot deny his physical his, his physical talent, his physical skills. What you wouldn't want is a coach who tries to exploit that, you know, and, and ends up getting him hurt. So I think for a guy like Josh Allen, who has the instincts to throw himself into the fire, you have to have a coach who's able to temper that in certain ways and get through to him about his availability. That said, if the Broncos were able to find that guy, they might be going to the, they might be going to the, uh, the, the Super Bowl this year. Who knows? Yeah. Chad. It'd be interesting. Uh, it's, I think it's an interesting thought-provoking uh, question because of the various coaches who the Broncos have had, who would be the one that would stick with Josh Allen? Um, now, we know VJ didn't get to hire his own staff. Right. But would John Elway have put a quarterback whisperer uh, on the staff like Sean McDermott did with Brian Daybo? So it was Brian Dable who really accelerated the growth of Josh Allen. Right. Um, it wasn't Sean McDermott. So you could have a defensive-minded head coach like VJ, like Sean McDermott, but as long as there's an offensive coach on, on the offensive staff who's that guy who can literally develop this guy and make him better and take away the flaws from his college game but also accentuate the positives as Brian Dable was able to do with Josh Allen, then you know, then maybe VJ could still be the coach here, even though that quarterback whisperer would have probably went on to become a head coach because he turned Josh Allen from a 50% passer in Wyoming into a 68% passer in the NFL, and the Broncos are a perennial playoff team. So, you know, which coach would have stuck? Which coach would have been the right mix of, of ingredients for Josh Allen to truly excel? Um, yeah, it's a very interesting question, but I think Josh Allen would still be the quarterback here. He would have shown enough. Yeah. no matter who the coaches were, to have that consistency. Now, of course, he would have had to have been paid, so they would be past Josh Allen's rookie window. Right. So then they would have to make the difficult choices that come with having that kind of paid quarterback. And the defense would have been chipped away at, maybe Justin Simmons isn't here. Um, maybe you know uh, uh, somebody else on the defense is no, is no longer a part of this team. But I think we all be fine with that scenario because we would still have our quarterback. And as long as you have that quarterback in the NFL, as we have seen this season, particularly you are in the Super Bowl window, even though Cincinnati didn't make the playoffs, they are still in the Super Bowl window because they got Joe Burrow. No doubt. Even though he got banged up this year and missed games, they were still in a Super Bowl window because of who he is. So the Broncos would be in that kind of the conversation year in and year out if Josh Allen was their quarterback. You know, it's fascinating is, is watching the Chargers right now because Jim Harbaugh has already interviewed with them. And boy, is that tempting to see what Jim Harbaugh could do with Justin Herbert, who probably is, is, is an example of like everybody agrees he's a talented guy. Overrated. Do you really think so? Seriously? Uh -huh. Yeah. I okay. don't think he has the it factor. Okay. Oh, when have well. you ever seen when have you ever seen him engineer a game winning drive? I hey, all right. Is that he should have at least a couple by now in his career. Okay, okay. I, I see where you're going because he's an introvert, not an extrovert. He's a little bit different than most of those 
alpha quarterbacks. I, I think a lot of Herbert, but I, I see where you're coming from. I guess when I look at the playoffs in the great eight, seven of the eight quarterbacks remaining in the playoffs this year, guys, are first round quarterbacks. More than half of those are highly drafted. Now, they're not all with the same team because Goff is with the Lions and Mayfield. And what a remarkable job by the Buccaneers, by the way, against the Eagles. Mayfield is with the Bucs, which is, I think, his fourth team, maybe. But it does go to show you, fellas, that players need time, in my opinion, to develop. You know, and what a fair amount of time is, I suppose, depends. But, Nate, seven of the eight teams have a quarterback drafted in the first round. The the one exception is Brock Purdy, who was drafted in the seventh round, which, of course, is not a strategy. That's just shit luck if you can figure that one out. Nobody's going with that. But it's nice to have that sort of backup plan as a break glass in case of emergency. What does it say, if anything, that seven of the eight teams that are in the playoffs right now have a first-round drafted quarterback? Um, you know, I think there's a lot there because, you know, those first rounders like like Jordan Love was late first round. Right. So that would kind of go. 20s, against, yeah. Yep. Yeah. So that, that would sort of go against some of that philosophy. Um, but look, I think that like you alluded to just now that that you, you need time to figure things out as a quarterback, regardless of where you're drafted. If you get the time, yeah. if you and, and, and part of that is what you always say, that if you're a first round pick, you get more reps. Right. Yes. And so if you get reps and you are allowed to learn. Because some of these guys are on their second teams now. You talk about Baker Mayfield, right? Yeah. Jared Goff, right? Those guys have been written off by a lot of people. And they learn. They just had it's a rep-based position. You need as many reps as possible. So you start to see things and be able to react to it without thinking. And the young quarterbacks can't do that. And so I think think some of these first round pick uh, quarterbacks who get doomed get thrown in there too quick. Yes. The book gets written on them, yes. and then they get cast off and never get those chances again. And I, I just a, a huge credit to Baker Mayfield and his resilience. I mean, that guy's been through a ton, a laughing stock of the league, you know, punchline for a while, gets dealt, goes to a bunch of different teams, and all of a sudden he's got these guys on the doorstep now. So, mm. um, And you remember that team won the Super Bowl a couple of years ago. So this is a team that remembers what it's like to win it all. And now they got a quarterback playing at a high level. So that matters. You know, the team around you matters. And and having a guy that isn't supposed to carry it all himself, right? Um, Detroit, it's about the culture. It's not about the quarterback. It's never been about the quarterback. And that's that, to me, allows Jared Goff to thrive. I think each team is different in that yeah. regard. But to me, when I hear when I hear that, that they're all first-rounders, these guys have been able to get their reps. And it didn't happen perfectly at first. But they stuck with them, got some second chances, and here they are. All right, just for uh, housekeeping's sake, Justin Herbert has. Oh, I knew 11. you were looking that up. I knew you were looking <laughs> that up, dude. I, I saw your little face working, dude. But but not 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 an attempt to uh, to no, shame you, Nate. Just to provide some context to the conversation. <laughs> yeah, of course, of course, yeah, of course. We're just eleven having, fourth quarter comebacks, time. fourteen game winning drives. But to your point, only one of those was in twenty twenty three, week fourteen against Minnesota. Uh, but in twenty twenty two, he had five. In uh, 2021, he had five. In 2020, he had three. So I think my um, question was, do you remember it? And you didn't because it wasn't no. memorable. <laughs> no. Wait a no. second. Hold on, Nate. Chad just killed you with truth. You're just going to have to take that one right there. I mean, whether you no. remember no, it. No, um, I'm, I'm, I'm actually asked you, I'm if you remembered it and he did. Yeah. I'm I said, do you guys remember it? We, we, we perceive Justin Herbert as one of the better quarterbacks in the league. And um, to have one of the better quarterbacks in the league and watch as much football as the three of us watch 
to not have a memory right, of Justin fair. Herbert pulling fair. this off. That's I think fair. that speaks to, to Nate's point. Yeah. Um, and I, I didn't compare his numbers to any other quarterback. So I don't know where, where that number fits. Um, 14 in three years or four years. I, I'm, I'm not sure where that number fits, but I, I think it's Nate's points is, is really true because for 2023 where, he needed to be that guy because yeah. the rest of the team wasn't as good as previous years. He only produced one. He only produced one. So um, perception versus reality kind of thing. Um, but I think to your point, DMAC, um, yeah, obviously drafting a quarterback in the first round, building your organization around him is clearly the cleanest, clearest path to postseason success. Yeah. Anything the further you, you get removed from that particular former formula, the lesser and lesser and lesser and lesser your chances for success are. Um, so if you are going to be a football team that has those kind of expe- expectations, Denver Broncos, then this offseason is critical. What moves do you make? What choices do you make? Looking at the teams who are remaining here, they've made this choice. It brought them success. Do you want to follow that formula? Or do you think you got one of your own, which – Certainly could be possible, Tom Brady, Brock Purdy. Yeah. But if that's the way you want to go, you got to know your chances of success are very, very small versus this first round opportunity, which gives you a massive chance for success. Listen, I wouldn't feel as strongly about the first round thing if I saw quarterbacks who were drafted in the second or third round get equal opportunity as first round guys. But that just doesn't happen. And they don't have a, a, a fifth year option like first round guys do. So not only do they not get the same opportunity, you technically get less time with them. So I, I don't think it's necessarily fair. And I think if guys drafted later on, were given the same opportunity, I think a lot of guys would be more successful. But what can I tell you? This is just the reality of the situation, Nate. This is just the way the NFL is. I'm so I, I, I keep seeing odd oh, DMAC. He's a second round guy drafted in the first round. I'm like, yeah, guess what? That's what is happening now because teams are impatient and they don't sit around. So if if a first round guy really is a second round value, well, what the hell is the second round guy? The third round guy? What the hell is his value if all these guys are being overvalued? So you can't just wait, in my opinion, to the second or third round because really you're getting a fifth or sixth round value on this guy. It may be a sucky system, but it's the system we live in. And more specifically to the Broncos, you can't wait, form a team, and then fit a guy in. You can't do that. Maybe you could back in the day if you got the most patient coach and organization of all time. But, Nate, that is just not the way it is anymore. That's what the Chiefs did. Well, but they moved up for Mahomes and then yeah. gave him a red shirt year with Alex Smith as a mentor. They were still a playoff team. But yeah, they were a playoff team. That's the difference. They were a 10-win team. But they but they waited five years under Andy Reid and Alex Smith to do that. They they did, but look how aggressive they were and how they moved up for Mahomes once they, they sort of knew it. And that must have been a weird situation for Alex Smith, who's obviously a high-level, a number one overall pick back in his day. I but mean, the Lions, too, man. I mean, you, the, I, Lions the Lions didn't do it your way. They didn't no. do it. The Tampa Bay Bucks didn't do it your way. The Niners didn't do it your way. So... And and the, and the, and the Packers didn't even really do it your way. So actually, the majority of the teams who were left did not do it your way. <laughs> that's that that's true. But they did it with the same level of talent in some sort of evaluation. Goff a number one overall. Mayfield a number one overall. Uh, what was the other team you said? There was another team you threw in there. Well, the Packers. The Packers really did not do it my way. You're right about that. I mean, I thought they were insane what they did. 
Um, and that gestation period, I think, is ludicrous. But it's working out. I don't think they're much of a team, and I don't think they have much of a chance. But I got to give Jordan uh, Love his flowers. Talk about patience and coming through. Plus, he had to deal with that, you know, idiot Aaron Rodgers for years in the quarterback room. That couldn't have been easy. All right, I want to get on to something uh, relatively quickly Real here. Quick. Yeah. The, the 49ers did try to do it that way. They went up and got right. Trey Lance, and, they, and right. they gave up all the draft capital. They right. went with that formula. That was the formula that they went with. One of the best organizations, one of the smartest head coaches and smartest GMs in all of football, that was the formula they went with. Of course, it didn't pan out. It panned out the other way, yeah. but it just speaks to the willingness and desire. If we need a quarterback, this is the path we have to take. Right, and the success to be didn't come that way, though. The success part, didn't. did not. They, did got, not. they got ridiculously lucky, but part of my way – is to back it up in later rounds anyway, year after year. I believe in total quarterback development, not just one guy and that's it, but I don't really care about that guy in the fifth, sixth, seventh round, but do it anyway because it just supports the room, I think, better, and you never know. So it's kind of my way, but of course, the Niners, you know, they, they, but another good point, once the Niners realize this ain't the guy, they're, they're, their whole organization wasn't blown to smithereens. They just kind of moved ahead. And, you know, good for them. All right, real quick here. What do you guys think about our guy, James Merrillat, Patrick Stan, and Justin Simmons, and all the stuff they got into? I mean, I'll, I'll, I'll keep it a broad, open-ended question where James makes a criticism about Sertan. Sertan comes back at him. Simmons tr- jumps in. Simmons says that you will be addressed later. I don't know what the hell that means. And James comes back and was like yelling at Sertan, you ain't that good. We should have had Micah Parsons. And you had a back and forth between basically a muggle, a good-looking muggle because James is much better looking than me, and two professional football players who make millions and millions of dollars. Your your overall take on that back and forth. Who do you want to go first? (laughs) I'll go. Um, So I like James. I think he's good at what he does. Very smart. He is a huge Denver sports fan. Um, but um, as an athlete, you know, you can only get poked at so many times. And I, I don't know, James will probably say he wasn't poking. You know, he's just uh, giving his take and stuff like that. But it, it was poking. It certainly was poking. Some words were shared that I don't think would be shared in person if they were standing face to face. And ultimately, to me, that's the litmus test here. If you as a muggle wouldn't say this to the person if they were standing in front of you, don't say it online. Then it becomes disingenuous, and then you can't complain if he comes back at you. These guys are human beings. They care about what they do, and unfortunately, they're inundated and drowned in this social media conversation about them as people and the job they did. You don't think they're you know, bummed or disappointed that things ended the way they did? You don't think that they put their hearts into this thing and, and care about it more than you do as a muggle? This is their life. This is their livelihood. This is what they do every waking hour is try to be the best they can on the field for us for the fans, for their families and all that. And so to be poked at and, you know, even if it's in a, in a backhanded compliment type of a way, still it doesn't sit well. And so expect them to come back and don't complain if they come back at you. And ultimately, like I said, the litmus test, if you wouldn't say it to them in person, in real life, don't say it online or it's a lie. Mm. All right. So, you know, Everybody's wrong in this situation. Okay. Everybody's wrong. Um, <laughs> okay. But at the same time, uh, I, I put this one on Pat Sertan and Justin Simmons. You, you, you know, you, you shouldn't be going on Twitter and as a professional athlete 
and seeking out negative comments and replying to them. There's no win in that for you, even though you have the right to do that, even though you may feel justified to correct the record. um, It's impossible for you to look good in this situation. This is what James Merrillat does. He has hot takes. He throws bombs. This is what his broadcasting and media personality is. And so to get upset at the guy who made has made a career out of that. Yeah. You got to be a little bit more thick skinned, Patrick Tan and Justin Simmons. You weren't even really involved. And I know there's a desire to stick up for your boy, uh, but then it doesn't help you either. Justin Simmons, you've done a tremendous job in the community. You're the go-to Bronco for anything controversial or anything important. They put the microphone in front of your face because you have developed that trust within the community. And you want to throw that away for freaking James Merrillat? Are you kidding me? Come on, man. You're smarter than that, Justin Simmons. There's no win in that for you at all, whatsoever. So, you know, Pastor Tan has not built up that kind of reputation, nor is he that kind of guy in front of cameras and microphones. So I don't really know who he is. But for Justin Simmons, I've spent time with Justin. You know, was I lucky in my career to avoid all this social media thing? I was. Would I have reacted as these guys have here? Hopefully not, but maybe I would have. So this could be a little bit of a holier-than-thou situation coming from me. But I would say there's... There's so little chance for success. And aren't we supposed to do things that give us the greatest chance for success? And there's so little chance for success for Justin Simmons and PS2 here to just ignore the troll and let James do his thing and have these conversations about trading you. Just let that go, man, because it doesn't look good and reflect well upon you in the end. Man, talking to you guys every day is such a treat. <clears throat> your, your intelligence, your smarts, your experience, just everything is is awesome. And I just love it. Um, so sometimes I just sit there and shut up, which is not easy for me to do. But it's probably <laughs> best that I do so more often than not. Thank you, guys. Awesome as always. We'll talk to you tomorrow where we kill you with the truth. Bye. Geesh. <laughs>